Please welcome the naturally brown woman, Dr. Sarah Benson. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for bringing attention to this very important topic and for having me to be part of it. You know, it's, it is definitely our pleasure. Um, in this time and season that we're in, uh, a lot of us are feeling the impact. You know, some associations say that we are living in a racism pandemic as though it just happened a couple of months ago. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's really important to take a long view with this, right? So pandemic sort of implies um, it's something that has come about and that there's some time limited quality to it, you know, but the reality is racism, race-based trauma uh, predates the US constitution. So uh, this idea that this is new or that this is, um, something that we're experiencing a wave of isn't quite true when you look at it in historical context. There may be more white people paying attention to it now, which I think may be the difference. Uh, but the reality is racism, the terrorization of black people, the subjugation of black people and other people of color um, is something that is part and parcel of this country and of people's experiences in this country. So I do think it's true that it is impacting people's mental well-being. It is impacting people's health. It is something that we need to think about but this isn't some time limited way that's coming now. Um, it's always been there. It's always been there. You know, I, I like to say, um, I often hear that, you know, we are living in a divided country. Our country is divided. And it's like, well, you know, our country has been this way for a long time. I think that it's just becoming a reality to some people. You know, it's nothing new to us, to many African-American people, it's, it's nothing new. Same thing that you're saying right now. It's like, you know, racism is not new. It's been here for a long time and we've been dealing with it for a very, very long time. Um, I want you to, to just start with just the definition. You know, what is racial trauma exactly? So at its core, uh, trauma is when your sense of safety and security in the world is undermined. Um, and that could be because of an injury you experience, because of an injury you see somebody else experience, because of not having basic things that you need reliably met. Um, so, so that's trauma at its essence. And so when we put race in front of it, it's trauma that you experience because of the color of your skin. And we know that race is a, is a societal construct. It's not a bio biological construct. Um, and so it's trauma that you experience because of your place in society uh, because of this race that society has, has assigned to you. Um, and so things that you would only experience because of your race uh, that undermine your sense of safety and security are racial traumas. And talk about what that looks like. Well, racial trauma takes on many different manifestations. It's not you know, one thing that you can define. Uh, racial trauma can be the little black girl at school uh, being told by the white kids that she shouldn't play with the black doll because the black doll is ugly. Racial trauma can be seeing a video of a police officer kill an unarmed black person. It can be um, structural in the form of subpar services delivered to black people in hospitals and increased maternity mortality rates and things like that. Um, and so one of the things about racial trauma that makes it so difficult is that it is all around us. It is literally everywhere we turn um, as we operate in society because it's not just a matter of, you know, 
a cluster of racist people who make things difficult. It is the way that society is constructed, the way that it's built um, that is around this issue of race that makes this really, um, in a lot of ways, inescapable. Every single day we're, we're faced with it. It's something else that happens. And we talk about the process of, you know, um, of healing, of being able to move forward, to function. Um, and you can see one thing and then there's another thing that you see, you're like, okay, when will this stop? Will it stop? Um, how do you know if you are in the state of a, a traumatic state? You know, um, uh, what are the symptoms, you know, the, the symptoms that one may feel if they're experiencing racial trauma? So the body and the brain have a number of stress responses um, and they can look very different for different people. Uh, for some people, the stress response is I'm going to defend myself and I'm going to fight and, I'm, and that may look like impulsivity or aggression. For some people, it may look like I want to look as uh, benign as possible and so I'm going to shrink and be quiet and passive. Um, and so it's really important when you're thinking about racial trauma to understand that different people manifest it in different ways, but it really does run the gamut. Uh, but some common things could be uh, difficulty sleeping, difficulty with concentration, feeling on edge or jumpy, um, things like that. Because if you think about it, if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel secure, then you are in this constant state of looking for sort of what the next threat's going to be or looking for like ways to feel more safe and secure. And so that takes on an importance in your headspace and how you operate in the world. And so if you're focused on mere survival, it can make other things like winding down for sleep or concentrating on work that much more difficult. Yeah, not feeling safe. Uh, it seems like that's the key when you don't feel safe. What's the difference between normal stress reaction to a situation and having a mental health issue? When you think about mental health, mental illness, we're all on a continuum. Anybody can end up being someone who has a mental illness. And when it gets to that point where you have a diagnosable mental condition, like major depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder or PTSD, that's when uh, you would want to think about seeing a professional potentially. And one of the big differentiators from is this a stress response versus a disorder? How long does it stay around? Um, and how impairing is it? So is it making it difficult for you to function? Um, or are you able to function, but is it taking an extraordinary amount of effort in order for you to do that? Dealing with just the anger of it, you know, when you're talking about self-care, the anger and um, the, the lack of trust, you know, um, that we may experience. Um, talk about some of those things, those emotional, some more about even just dealing with the anger. Yeah, and so that's another thing that it's important not to pathologize you know, normal reactions, right? It's a matter of what you do with that anger, but we don't want to tell people there's something wrong with them if they feel angry. Um, we don't want to not allow people the full range of human emotions and experiences because you happen to be black and you're afraid of being labeled the angry black woman or the angry black man, right? 
Um, but but there and there's a way even though that that comes from trauma, right? Because if you can be shot or killed um, when you don't have a weapon, when you're not actually fighting, when you're not actually angry, then God forbid you do something that gives people justification to harm you, yeah. right? So even that is a piece of like self-protection. It's an overcorrection um, for not wanting to seem threatening because you know uh, when you go into the world with black skin on, that's seen as a threat in and of itself, right? And so you don't wanna add anything anything to that. Um, and so it's, it's important to, to understand it's, it's okay to be angry. It's a matter of thinking about how you can channel that, what you can do with that, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that that anger is not displaced on people around you because they're around, um, even though they're not the source of the problem uh, because sometimes that happens. Um, and so being aware of it, owning it, and then being uh, thoughtful about what you what you do with it. Let's talk about the teens for now. And then I want to talk about the, the young children, the, the four to five year olds. Um, how do you uh, work with them? You know, I know you have a practice and you, um, you counsel people, you therapy. Um, what are some of the key things that parents should look for? So you do want to know what they've seen uh, what they think about it and how they feel about it. And all three of those questions are really important. Um, in most cases, you're not going to be able to shelter them from all of these things that are happening, especially now. Um, and so it's really important that you as a caring adult in their life uh, helps them put this in context because if you don't help them put this in context, they're sort of left on their own to try to figure it out. Mm. And the reality is uh, you may have to do some work to think about how you feel about it and to, and to figure it out yourself uh, because, you know, for various reasons, the American school system doesn't really get into these things. So a lot of us have to be sort of self-taught, but um, understand that you, you, you can't bury your head. And so you want to give your teenagers tools to think about this. You want to give them context to think about this. Um, and you want to give them an explanation uh, that is not, um, you need to provide a counter narrative, right? So what you'll see sometimes when things happen is, well, you know, if they had done this, then they would have been fine. Or there's implications of, uh, you know, the black person who was harmed being a thug or being somebody who somehow deserved it, right? And so you wanna make sure that your children understand or your teens understand um, that that is an old trick, right? Of blaming the victim. You wanna make sure that they understand um, that it's not that black people deserve this, but this is part of racism. Um, and you wanna make sure that they don't take in those messages of black being bad or black being inherently violent or angry um, because the risk is that if you don't give them context if you don't help correct that, they could internalize that, right? So they could uh, take in these messages and think that they are less than, think that they are not worthy of protection, think that they don't have um, sort of agency in the world. And so it's really important that you're, you're honest with them and you talk to them about these things. Another thing that I would say is really important with teenagers is having conversations about police interactions and not just um, the interactions around, you know, show the officer your hands, 
say yes sir, those sorts of things. And that's important and they should do that, absolutely. But it's also important that they understand how the system works and how the system does not work. Yeah. And um, that they understand things like, um, if you're ever apprehended, you ask for a lawyer and you shut up and you don't say anything else. Um, that they understand they are not your friend. That they understand police officers can lie to you during interrogations. Um, that they are aware of these things. Because what I've seen in my forensic work is sometimes parents think, oh, you should tell your children to tell the truth. You should tell your child to shut up. Huh. Um, it, that would make sense if it was a fair and just system. Yeah. It is not a fair and just system, especially not for kids like yours. Um, so parents need to be mindful of the advice they give their children about their interactions and to make sure they understand, um, again, shut up. If you ever find yourself in an interrogation room talking to a police officer, you have to give them your name, uh, but you don't have to say anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's any possibility they're a suspect, they don't need to say anything else. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that information. That's some uh, very powerful tools. Um, just to be quiet, <laughs> just to be quiet. Shut yeah. up, <laughs> be quiet, ask for your lawyer. That's, that's another thing too that, that's important to point out. Yeah. So if, if you ask for a lawyer, they have to give you a lawyer. Yeah. If you ask for your parent, they don't necessarily have to give you your parent, which a lot of people don't know. Yes, okay. So you need to teach your children to ask for an attorney because if they ask for you, the police may or may not honor that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that information. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, and uh, when you talk about being safe and, and uh, changing the narrative, making sure that you give your child the information they need. And I remember uh, riding a school bus, and in many cases when I was growing up in our community, I would be the only African-American female in my classroom uh, on my bus, you know, that type of thing. And I remember my seventh grade year, um, uh, seventh, eighth grade, middle school type of thing. And um, every day there was these young, these boys in the back of the bus and they would call me the N word just about every day that I got on the bus. And you're talking about feeling a little bit unsafe, you know, unsure. And, um, but there was always uh, this- And I take it the bus driver didn't do anything about it. The bus driver did nothing. <laughs> the bus driver did absolute nothing at all. There was this one, um, and it's, 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 it's very odd because uh, I remember taking the trip with my grandfather. He wanted to, my step-grandfather, he wanted to go to the store. And, you know, he drug me along, went along with him. And um, we get out of the car and he kept saying, you know, I'm going to go see Mr. Pearson. I just called the person. <laughs> he just come go see Mr. Pearson. I was like, okay. And turned out the person that he was talking about was the bus driver. So here I am, you know, a little, you know, middle school and looking at, looking up at these two men and this one man who never said anything on the bus. And, and I'm thinking, you're having a conversation with my grandfather here. And they're talking like everything is okay. And I'm standing there going like, but I'm not okay because, you know, because of what happened, but on that bus itself, uh, there was this one girl, a Caucasian girl, she would always let me sit with her. So every day she would mm -hmm. scoot over and make room for me on the bus. So uh, that taught me several lessons. Um, 
you know, just several lessons, including that there are some people out there who um, are genuinely wanting to support, who are wanting to help that are, you know, that are non-Black and um, who are sincerely want to do that. How can whites and other non-Blacks best give their support? So, you know, I, there's, it's, it's really important to uh, think about bystanders, right? So we pay a lot of attention to the people who do the name calling or whatever offense it is. Um, we pay a lot of attention to allies or so-called allies. We pay less attention to the bystanders, the people like the bus driver, right? But that's the category that a lot of people fall into. Um, and those people are complicit in oppression. And those people um, are kind of the swing vote in this whole thing, right? Um, if those folks would get off the sidelines, it would be a game changer. Um, and so I, I want to, to make it very clear if, if you have people watching who aren't um, Black or Indigenous or, or people of color, that there is a complicity mm -hmm. and a support that you're giving to racism if you are seeing it happening and doing nothing about it. Yeah. Um, so just by speaking up, and of course with that bus driver, you know, he was in a position of authority. So he wasn't just someone who had the privilege of being white and a male, he was in a position of authority. Mm -hmm. um, and so he had, three privilege points that he could, and he was older, four. So he had four pieces of privilege that he could have used to help you and, and didn't, right? Mm -hmm. um, so thinking about your privilege, if you care about this, yes. um, if you actually care about this and how you can use it to, to address these things. Because what I see is that um, sometimes people may be willing to like a story or retweet something, but when it comes to actually using your voice and speaking up, radio silence. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, your tweet is not helping. Yeah. Um, I need you to, to speak up when you see it happening and you will see it happening if you pay attention. Yes, yeah. I call it that neutral stance. I'm just going to be neutral, you know, um, and I'm not going to say, all right, I don't want to offend my friends over here and I don't want to do this. So I'm just going to be neutral the whole time. And sometimes people even have behind their faith and use faith as an excuse that I'm just going to be neutral. You know, um, you know, my faith says that faith without works is dead. You got to have both. You got to have a faith, and then you got to do something. You know, um, so I've seen that happen as well. Let me just hide behind this, and I'll just hide behind love. Yeah, yeah, I believe in love too, but love is also action. You know. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and for and for the people who call themselves Christians, um, I would challenge them. Who are doing that and playing you to read uh, Jesus and the Disinherited uh, by Thurman. And he's a theologian and he talks about uh, Jesus's place in the social hierarchies during his time. Mm -hmm. And based on that, where do you think he would fall in these discussions around uh, justice and fair treatment and how minorities are approached? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the reality is. Unfortunately, you know, in this country, not just in this country, uh, white people have used Christianity to justify some terrible things against people of color. Um, it has provided cover to racist acts 
You think about organizations like the KKK that claim the mantle of Christianity. Um, you think about the fact that in Ghana, you had slave dungeons where people were literally living in inches of their own excrement with a church built directly on top of it. Um, you think about songs like Amazing Grace being written by slave traders. So um, there is talk about complicity. There's a way that white Christianity has been uh, complicit at best and uh, an agent of, of oppression um, at, at worst. Um, and, you know, I, I would challenge people who, again, who call themselves Christian to, to, to read that book um, and see if you feel as if you can still, in good faith, uh, be neutral. Because when you say neutral, what you're saying is, I am co-signing the status quo. And the status quo is racist. So if you have racist status quo plus neutral, that means things are still racist. Uh, so, so there isn't, there isn't a neutral, either you're supporting things as they are, or you're supporting change. And if you're supporting things as they are, then that's a vote for racism. It's that simple. Yeah. 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 Um, the people on the bus and you're, you're just, you're really just breaking down that whole analogy, the person in authority, the neutral person, uh, and not focusing just on the people who are calling the name, but also that the person that was the support, you know? that was sitting on the bus for support, those who do want to support. Yeah, and you know, I think that's a really lovely example because it shows how support can look and it doesn't always look like uh, telling the overtly racist person to be quiet, right? It may look like identifying with the person of color and saying, I see you um, and I see what you're going through and I'm going to do something to help you feel more comfortable or to give you space um, or to not sort of perpetuate this mistreatment that you're experiencing. And, you know, there have been times where I've been in meetings and someone says something racist and, you know, the white person who I considered an ally might not have said anything, but we looked at each other across the room, like, did that just happen? And they look at me back like, yep, that just did. And I'm like, that's crazy. You know, you know, you have those conversations with your eyes. So, you know, that, it's, it's, it's not always you ranting and pointing your finger and calling out the racism on the spot, which I would appreciate it if more people did. Yeah. But sometimes it's, it's a matter of just acknowledging what just happened um, and not being part of this sort of collective gaslighting we do in America where we act like racist stuff isn't happening all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So just acknowledging, yeah, that was out of line is, is helpful to, to your, your colleagues um, or your family members or your people in the community who have this burden of like, did that, did he really just say that? What did he mean by that? Was that a racist comment? Like all this, this headspace that goes into sort of deconstructing what just happened, it's really helpful to have somebody else say, that was crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. even that sometimes, is- Sometimes when it initially happens, you may feel a little shock like, yeah, you pause for a minute, wait. And you're processing all of this like, this person just made this comment and it, you know, something ain't right. And you're just kind of going through this in your mind. So yeah, to um, look at that and go like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, nothing's wrong with me. I'm okay. And that what he just said, mm -hmm. is not okay. It's not okay. So things like, um, uh, you know, for other communities, just to be able to, or say, if you're like non-Black, uh, to lend support and you don't know what to do. You know, sometimes that 
that phone call, if you have a, a, a person of color that's a friend a calling, uh, saying hello, saying how you're doing. Um, I think all of those things help. Yeah. And also think about how, you know, if you have privilege, how you can use it, right? So if you are, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in, I have a private practice in my own business, but I'm also in academia. So in academia, um, being on posters or speaking at conferences or things like that are a big part of advancing your career. If you are a, a white person in academia and you're submitting a poster or a grant, like you should have a person of color on there, mm-hmm. right? Um, you should make it a point to, like that's a way of using your privilege to help correct. And this isn't about handouts, right? This is acknowledging the fact that artificial barriers have been erected yes. uh, for people of color and you doing something to counter the impact of that barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really seeing it as a, as a course correction yes. and not as a handout because it's not, um, and, and being intentional about thinking about sort of, you know, how am I privileged and how can I use that to, to correct these wrongs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about, you know, for companies, uh, your thoughts on just implementing things such as diversity training, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, I mean, diversity training is helpful in terms of painting the picture and identifying the why and giving some background information. And that's important, Uh, but it is not sufficient, right? So um, we know that change is hard, right? That's why people make New Year's resolutions every January and by February, you know, that gym membership is not being used, right? Um, And so a diversity day is not a substitute for looking at your system, being curious about why your organizational chart is so white at the top, um, thinking about why your outcomes are different for people of color who are your customers or patients or students or, you know, insert whatever it is in the blank uh, versus whites. Um, And so you know, I challenge people not to stop at diversity day or pat themselves on the back because they took one day out of 365 and did four hours talking about these things, but really looking at your system and its production and the disparities inherent in that and being committed to addressing it um, and doing that in an measurement-based way, right? Because what you can see sometimes at diversity days is people go and they say, oh, that's so terrible that people are treated that way in 2020, but they don't want to associate their system or themselves with that treatment, right? Because, um, well, a lot of people don't. Some people are fine associating being racist, but you know, some people don't. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily translate to change because people tend to think, oh, well, it's unfortunate that other people do racist things, but they don't necessarily realize that that's them in their system, right? And so having some hard facts and, you know, again, sort of just using medicine as an example, I was talking to a woman with an OBGYN group yesterday, and she was talking about them having diversity days. And I said, well, uh, you know, do your Black patients have different outcomes? Do your Black patients um, continue with your providers at the same rate that your white patients do? That's what I care about. And she's like, oh, yeah. And we have that data. We could look at that. 
you should look at that, right? That's the, that's, that's the work. You do need the diversity data set the backdrop and to help people get why you need to do the work, but that's not the work. Yeah, it shouldn't, just stop, it shouldn't just stop there. Yeah, and if it stops there, you really, you really haven't done anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Dr. Vincent, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Um, but I also would like to say that those years, that year or on the bus, it seemed like a year, seemed, probably seemed like two years as a kid on the bus. Um, you know, I never told my mom until I became an adult and she almost freaked out. Uh, and I don't know why I can't to this, go back to that seventh, eighth grade ago, like, why didn't you tell your mom? I just didn't. And, um, and she, she kind of like, I had to counsel her <laughs> to say, you know, yeah, we're good. We're moving on. You know, we're, we're going through the healing process with that. Um, but I thank you today for all the information that you shared. It has truly been empowering. And I pray that whoever watches this and sees this, that they would uh, just know how to move forward. And I want you to give us some final thoughts of, you know, how can we better cope and deal with racism here in America? How can we best self-care? Yeah, so you know, my, my final thought is is for the black people who are who are catching this from all sides. Um, if you are a reader, uh, Isabella Wilkerson's cast is amazing. Um, it really helps you understand that this isn't just race, it's it's cast. And um, if if anything makes 2020 make sense, it's that book. Um, so I would say that's really helpful, sort of background context information. Um, but you know, black people we get these messages, we have to work harder, we have to be better to get the same, and that's true. Um, but we also get these messages that we are not worthy of care. And we can even get that from Black people who mean well for us, right? That there's this John Henryism, work yourself to death, mm. um, sort of part of our culture. And, and it makes sense given the broader society, but our bodies pay for that. Our brains pay for that. Yeah. And what I have seen in my work is that most people know what helps them feel better. Most people know if it is listening to music or dancing or exercising or, um, you know, playing with your niece, like whatever it is, yes. you prioritize that as if your life depends on it. Um, because in this society, we still have to argue about Black Lives Mattering, right? Other people are not going to prioritize you taking care of yourself, your self-care. Um, so really, it, 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 for most people, they don't need somebody like me to tell them what is good for them. Um, they just haven't decided to prioritize and to do it. So um, Audrey Lord talks about how, um, you know, self-care is, is radical for Black people. Um, and it is. And, and that is part of the struggle that is part of your work because you're not going to be able to do that work and be part of the struggle if you're not in a good place yourself. Thank you so much. Lastly, tell everybody where they can reach you. Sure. So I am on Twitter at Dr. Sarah Speaks um, and Instagram 
uh, as well. And then my website is Dr. Sarah Vincent, S-A-R-A-H-V-I-N-S-O-N.com. And our self-class, yes. So yeah. our self-class. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it is a psycho, um, it's a website that's about mental health broadly defined. Um, and it is for Black people, by Black people, about Black people, and unapologetically so. Um, and it keeps in mind that, you know, we do face some unique challenges, but we also have some uh, incredible resilience and beauty and strength in um, our communities. And so it's just a resource for the public um, around mental health and, and really trying to shift the conversation from either you have a mental illness or you don't, or you're crazy or you're not, and just realizing that we're all on this continuum and that mental health really is broadly defined or it should be, um, and just being part of that conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for joining us on Naturally Brown Woman. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to see you again. We'd love for you to come back and talk some more because I know you have a wealth of information and a wealth of experience. And uh, we would just love for you to share some more of that. Drop some more. Thank knowledge. you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me.